Welcome back to the ENC Leadership Podcast, and we are on episode number 13. And thankfully, we are under the blood of Jesus, and we know that we have the favor of God, so we are not so worried. We are not worried at all about having a 13th episode, a unlucky, an unlucky episode. There's no such thing uh, under the blood of Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for that. <laughs> but we are uh, about to close this series of Leading in Anxious Times. And last week, we talked about the application of this, all this buildup we've been talking about, about um, the leader's emotions, the leader's relationships, the leader's responsibility, the signs of anxiety around us. All of that has been building up to, okay, what do we do now? This isn't just a self-help thing. It's something that we're supposed to use, especially in difficult times like this. That's what this is for. And so last week, we talked about leadership during crisis. What does calm leadership look like during crisis? Why is it so important during crisis? And today we're going to talk about an even, um, I don't know, maybe even more prominent or more obvious, definitely more relatable uh, manifestation of anxiety and one that requires good leadership, but it challenges uh, the best in, in all of us, the best kind of leadership in all of us, and that is leading during conflict. Calm leadership during conflict. How do we do that? And yeah, that's challenging, isn't it? And with all of this thinking of the of the systems thinking, it's easy for us to apply this when things are fine, when things are healthy, when we're reading, when we're in a book study group, or we're listening to a podcast. Okay, I get it, I get it. Okay, I can do this. But when the rubber meets the road, all right, when there is stress in the system, when there's stress in our own life, when we feel the anxiety is the fruit of our unbelief coming out of us, and then we see it in other people as well, then it's a little harder, and it's easy to forget these things. And yet when we, that's what this podcast is for, to help us identify this so that we can see it in the moment, even in the heat of the moment, we can make the right decisions. Uh, again, I'm quoting from our book that we've been using as a guide, The Leader's Journey, uh, by Jim Harrington and Trisha Taylor. And here's what they say about conflict. They said, systems thinking gives us a different way to think about the conflict that erupts from time to time in every organization. Through that lens, we can see conflict as an expression of the emotional process of the organization, a way that chronic anxiety shows up and spreads through the group. So they're talking about conflict, not just as the issue itself, the surface issue itself, but really it's a manifestation of the chronic anxiety in the system. We talked about this in episode 8 of this podcast. You might want to go back to that. And how do we know when it's, is it just an issue-based conflict or is it something that is uh, part of the chronic anxiety? Well, there, there are patterns that we can see. One of those patterns is that it's, it's a consistent pattern of conflict. Think about your own life. Um, your own friendships, your own teams, if you're married, your own marriage, uh, or, or their parents maybe, if you're, if you're living at home with your parents, or, or even if you aren't. Think of the most common arguments you have. If you can say that they follow a script, that you can almost predict how it's going to go. I'll say this, they'll say that, and then I'll say this, and we're not going to talk for another two weeks, and magagalit lang kami ulit. Maybe you've seen that. Friends friending, then unfriending, then canceling and blocking one another. And then later on, they'll be friends again. Maybe you've seen that, you know. Or, or, or maybe it's a team. Someone's definitely not going to do their job. And then this guy's going to do his job. And she's going to be mad at him. for the, and, and they're, 
there's a consistent pattern there, that's the sign that you know, wait a minute, this isn't just about that issue. Sometimes it's not the, just the, the issues itself, but even the people involved, the roles are, are almost uh, ridiculously the same. It's, it's almost like a sitcom of our life. Parang pelikula na, parang telenovela na, na. Ikaw lagi yung galit, ikaw lagi yung iiyak, ikaw lagi yung mag-walkout, ako lagi yung mag-peacemake sa atin. Sandali lang, guys. May naloloko na tayo dito. There's a consistent pattern. There's more than what we can see on the surface. There's uh, emotional cutting off people. Cancel one another. They don't like one another. But then the issue remains unresolved. We're gonna see this pop out again later on. That is a sign of chronic anxiety conflict. And how do we respond as leaders in that time? And if you've been listening to this podcast, especially about the leading in anxious times, there's no um, uh, recipe. There's no one, two, three, oh, this is that simple, just do this. You know, sprinkle this here, sprinkle that there, and okay na tayong lahat. Share this Bible verse, okay na tayong lahat. Hold a prayer meeting, hold a team building, do a consult. That is never, never, uh, well, maybe not never, but this is not the only way to fix things. As we've been saying over and over again with this thing that uh, what we need is to, to see the situation for what it is and each situation is different. And one of the ways we need to do that is by putting down our own anxiety, lowering our own anxiety so that we can respond well to conflict. So what I'm about to give you, three uh, ways to respond. This isn't supposed to be taken as a shortcut, but whatever right answer we're going to come up with, it will incorporate these three things. The first thing is right thinking. Right thinking. We have to think correctly about conflict. I've already said a little bit about that, that there's more beneath the surface. It means identifying what is conflict and, and, and uh, when is it something that's problematic. What is problematic about conflict? When we think about conflict in a system, in a team, in a family, even in a society, the first thing, if you want to be a leader who will lead well in conflict, the first thing you need to remember is this. It's not personal. Wow, that's hard for us to accept sometimes. And often it's because we think, how could it not be personal? This person just said really hurtful things to me or it really feels personal because it's aimed right at me. But we have to remember if we're talking about systems thinking that there's other things going on, not just what we feel about it. Uh, so in the book, uh, Jim Harrington and Trisha Taylor remind us of this axiom or this um, this proverb that says, in football, when you're playing football, the quarterback doesn't get tackled because he's the most hated player on the team. He gets tackled because he's the one with the ball. In other words, you're not being attacked because of um, who you are as a human being, but of where you're standing in regard to this issue because there's just different sides to the issue. There was a pastor that the... The author said that too, and they said, and the pastor said, how could you say this isn't personal? It sure felt personal when those people in my congregation were in my office yelling at me, calling me names. And Jim Harrington responded with this question, would they have been in your office yelling at you and calling you names if you were not their pastor? And then the pastor said, well, no. And he said, that's what I'm saying. It's not personal. It's not about you, yourself, against you. And if we want to have a chance of leading, of serving, and of coming together, then we need to realize it's not about you. It's not just against you. People are responding uh, from what they're seeing and very often from their own anxiety, and you've got to manage your own anxiety. When you're responding to people online, 
uh, if you take it personally every time, then you're not going to have the chance to promote dialogue and to promote an exchange and to listen and to grant the other person's point while making your own point because you're just going to feel attacked. It's not personal. This is the right thinking. What else is the right thinking? Number two, it's, we, it's not about the issue we see on the surface. Uh, the book, The Leader's Journey, says this. The difference in opinion is not the problem. The conflict that emerges in that undifferentiated space is the problem. It's not the difference in opinion that's the problem. It's the fact that we have this space between us and that creates conflict. That is the one that is the problem. The disagreement itself is not the problem. The intensity of the emotion that accompanies the disagreement and you know, because of the intensity of the emotion, the anxiously reactive behavior that ensues is the problem. We need to know what the issue is. And very often, the issue isn't what's stated or what's just on the surface. What else is right thinking? Number three, you don't need to put out every trace of conflict. You don't need to root it all out and find it. The goal is for us to coexist in society, to coexist as a team while accomplishing our goal. And that means knowing when to weigh in and when to leave it alone. You know, another kind of right thinking is number one, it's not personal. Number two, it's, it's more than the issue on the surface. And thirdly, there are usually, usually more than two sides to the issue. There are usually more than two sides to the issue. And we've discussed this again in, in chapter, uh, chapter 8, episode 8 of uh, uh, signs of chronic anxiety. When we see people who, they, the temptation is always to polarize, to say, oh, it's, you're either with me or against me, only here or there. And to, in order to solve a conflict, we need to be able to see the complexity of the problem, not just the simplistic, if inaccurate, um, two-side situation. Sometimes there are only two sides. But honestly, that's very rare. Very rare in life. Here's what they say in the book. Even the simplest decisions give us more than only two choices. And so Jim Harrington goes to describe this mentor, this supervisor of his, who would, uh, you know, he would talk about a client he was having and he was, I can say this or I can say that. And he would come to the mentor with two options. I could say this or I could say that. And both of these are difficult, so I can't, I don't, can't decide what to do. And then his mentor would, he, he, let me read it so we, we can appreciate it better. Yes, you could do that, he would say, stroking his beard. Or you could do the other thing. He would pause dramatically. Or you could stand on your chair and sing the national anthem. This was his way of reminding me that there was always a third option. There was always at least a third option. Once a leader introduces the possibilities beyond the polarized sides, the nature of the conflict changes. And this requires the leader to tolerate complexity, to avoid dualistic reasoning, and to eschew right or wrong solutions. What is this saying? It's saying, look... We, we often think when conflict is high because anxiety is high, it's, it's a winner-take-all game. It's a zero-sum game. You know, every, it's either you or me. It's, it's completely black and white. That's rarely the case with most conflicts in life. As we've seen in this whole time of systems thinking, we all have a side to play. Let me give you one third option already. Right now, if you're thinking of a con think of a conflict that you're in, think of a conflict in your team, in your family, uh, in your in your organization, your business, your church, wherever. Here's a third option that we all have: do nothing. 
there's the option of siding with one side, that's option one. Siding with the other side, option two. Option three, there's always do nothing. If there's nothing to do, do nothing. Why are we thinking about what to do when there's nothing to do? This is a sign of anxiety in our lives when we think over and over again about what we're supposed to do when the, the options are, are both dead ends and yet you keep uh, pondering both dead ends as if you're going to get anywhere. Do nothing. Go to bed. Get off the phone. Take a rest. I'm not saying do nothing all the time, obviously, but what I am saying is there's usually more than two sides. We have to have the right thinking when coming into conflict. When we see conflict, we've got to start thinking correctly. The first thing we think of, it's not personal. These people are angry, or these people are disappointed, or these people are sad, or these people are, 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 are up in arms, but this is not about me personally. This is something they're expressing and I need to hear them and what's going on with them. Secondly, it's not about the issue on the surface. There's something beneath. And thirdly, there are usually more than two sides. That's the right thinking. Secondly, it's having the right posture. If we really want to be leaders in the middle of conflict and our goal is not to destroy you know, uh, what we've built so far and our goal is to, to, to find a way to resolve the issue and continue moving forward together, we need to have the right thinking and secondly, the right posture. And what is the right posture? And the book describes it this way. It says maintain a position, a posture of neutrality. Maintain a posture of neutrality. Now, I, I want to ask you to stick with me with this and listen to the definition that they give in the book, okay? Because very often, we can take neutrality as someone who just doesn't care or someone who's, who's apathetic. That's not what they mean here. In fact, they are con con uh, constantly advocating for involvement, for, being, for helping, and all of that. But when they say maintain a posture of neutrality, what they mean is to honor the complexity of the conflict, to not just jump in. Sabi nga natin kanina, but there's more than two sides. So if we don't maintain a posture of neutrality, we're going to jump in and we're going to choose one side right away and say, mm, you're right or you're wrong. And we don't honor the complexity of the conflict. Someone has to lose right away. The other person uh, has to win everything. And that doesn't resolve the issue because the other person who quote-unquote lost also has valid points probably. And they, they have something they want to bring up. Let me read from the book. It says, if the leader can maintain a position of calm neutrality in the face of conflict, new patterns can emerge and people can find their way to a more peaceful place. Neutrality means that we are able to stay interested in and emotionally connected with both sides of a triangle without taking sides. I'm interested in you and I will remain connected with you, but I will not necessarily take exactly the same position as you. He goes on to clarify, remaining neutral doesn't mean that we don't have our own opinions and even our own strong convictions. What it does mean, though, is that we are managing our own emotional reactivity and helping the group to think differently about the conflict. A position of neutrality, as used in this book, doesn't mean you don't care about the issue. In fact, very often, you're going you're gonna to care about it. You're a human being. You, you've got principles and ethics and morals. You care about it as well, but you will not join in the reactivity of the most anxious and the most reactive person in the group. Because if you do that, then you are indistinguishable and you are not self-differentiated and you are not being the leader. That's what the position of neutrality means. 
it doesn't prevent us from expressing sympathy. It doesn't ex- prevent us from showing compassion. But what it does say is we need to go back and remember that I will be connected to you and not necessarily take your side, meaning be against the other side. A position of neutrality. What this means is it helps people to think. It helps people to think about things. See, what we want to do in, in this kind of calm leadership, especially during a crisis, is yes, our feelings are valid. Yes, we listen to emotions. Yes, we give a space for that to be expressed. But then we also want to move beyond that to help people think. Because unless we help people think, then we're not going to fix the problem. Emotions are valid, yes, but it's it's our emotions that that show us where to focus it but it's our thinking that's also critical at this time let me give an example of this you know and how challenging it can be and i'm going to use uh, our son philip so recently philip wanted to uh, watch something on tv and we're staying with our relatives here in the u.s so uh naturally because we're, we're living with them you know we want to be they've been great to us but we also want to be uh kind to them and not uh, be presumptuous and so Philip wanted to watch a show and I said, Philip, please wait because I want them to watch. We're going to make a plan and our plan is that we're all going to watch a show for everyone and then we can watch your show after that. And Philip looked at me and said, I do not like your plan. I want to destroy your plans. I want to fight your plans. Okay. Right thinking. Conflict. Ayan, conflict agad yan. Right thinking for me. And the first thing I had to resist, it's not personal. <laughs> now, now, if you're a parent, you know how difficult it is to not take that kind of thing personally. It's like, what is your problem, kid? You know, but okay, it's not personal. There's an issue beneath the surface. And I want to maintain a posture of neutrality. I'm not going to say, no, we made a plan. Stick to the plan. Neither am I going to say, you're right. Cancel their plans. Let's do your plan. No, no. I, I, I like their plan, but I also want to hear you, Philip, what is going on. I want to help him think. And so I asked him, Philip, uh, why do you want to destroy my plans? I don't like it. You're not doing what I want. That's interesting, Philip. And you know, I've felt that also from time to time. But I want to ask you, Philip, where does that come from, this desire to destroy? Where did this come from? Do you think this is the, the best way to respond right now? What if someone doesn't like your plan? Should they try to destroy your plan? And then Philip began to think. And this blew me away. And he said, you know what, Papa? I have inside me a a desire, a thinking to fight. I want to fight. And I said, okay, okay. And he said, said, I think it started when you bought me the ninja sword. And it made me think I can be a ninja who will fight. Okay, go, go on, Philip. And he said, then he said, but sometimes not everything is f- about fighting. Sometimes it's about talking. And I was just watching him. He was applying his thinking to it. And then he said, Papa, you know, even now while we're talking, the feeling, and he, I, I promise you, this is as close to verbatim as I can get, but this part I know is literally word for word. He goes, the feeling is melting away like wax when the candle is has a fire. The feeling is melting away like wax. And I was just blown away. And I said, all right, so Philip, what do you want to do now? And he said, I think I want to do our plan. Let's watch something together with them. And then later you stay with me. And then let's let's watch my show together. And I said, Philip, I would love that so much. 
the complexity of the conflict, the posture of neutrality, staying connected. I have strong feelings about it, but I want to stay connected. I want to hear you out and I want to encourage you to think because I know you can. I know that God speaks to you. I know the Holy Spirit is moving in this dynamic and that's why we can find the solution together. It doesn't have to be this winner-take-all, loser-gets-destroyed dynamic. The right posture, a posture of neutrality. You know what that means though is if we're going to do this, we've got to resist a couple of things and the book identifies it and specifically (laughs) for Christian leaders, for leaders who follow Jesus, specifically there's Two uh, tendencies we have that shortcut this process of resolving conflict and actually don't fix the problem. And here's the tricky thing with both of these things, okay? We can actually justify them in the Bible. We can actually say, well, no, there's a verse about that. That's obviously true. And, but that's not honoring the complexity of the issue. We have talked over and over again in this podcast about the biblical basis of this. All right? So when, when, I, when I say these things, it's going to challenge us a bit. But I want us to stay open-minded first and hear what it means. If we're going to have the right posture, we have to resist a couple of things. The first thing is spiritualizing. Spiritualizing the conflict. Let me read the quote from the book. It says, This means that we will have to resist the temptation to spiritualize the process. In churches, conflict is often seen as a sign that someone is sinful or out of God's will. The church then focuses on helping, in quotation marks, that person to repent and return to the fold. This rarely solves the problem in the long run. Oh my gosh, when I saw this quote, I wish I had a physical book so I could underline it a billion times. Well, not a billion times. I wouldn't have anything left to read. But I could underline it over and over again because I'm guilty of this. I've seen people in in conflict and I think, you know what? You just have a problem with insecurity. You know what? You just have a father issue. And I jump straight to that. And here's the thing. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. But the problem with spiritualizing it right away is by saying that, you've nullified all of their points. You've nullified all of their perspectives. You have a bad spirit. You have a divisive heart. Yeah, but he also has a point. But he also has a perspective. But she is also seeing something that is important to her. And if what we're saying now is, no, you are wrong, so shut up, abandon that perspective, you have no place, we are missing out. We're taking away that responsibility. Leaders, especially church leaders, resist the urge to spiritualize. Yes, God can deal with that over time. Yes, God will get there, but but maybe not now. And that's okay. And here's the thing. Pointing it out to them and denying the valid points they're making will not help them get there. It'll make it harder. We have to resist that urge to spiritualize. Right now, there are students who, who you know, they, they, they get burned out from leading with you in the campus ministry or maybe they you see them on social media and you think, oh, why are they posting these kinds of things? Or they drop out. Resist the urge to spiritualize. Hear them out first. Maybe they have a point. And maybe they have an issue. Who doesn't have an issue? We've all got issues. But you being close to them and opening the lines of conversation, that is how you can help them identify it. Not you screaming it at them and negating their points. Resist the urge to spiritualize. Secondly, resist the urge to show empathy at the expense 
of them taking responsibility. Resist the urge to show empathy at the expense of them taking responsibility. This is a little bit harder. Let me read to you the quote and let me finish it. And then I really had a hard time with this quote. I actually had to call Seth about it and be like, wait, what, is, what does this mean? Here's what it says. Resolving conflicts on the issue of resolving conflicts. If you are being sympathetic, feeling guilty, assuming responsibility, getting angry with someone or getting frustrated in hearing someone's story, then you are in a triangle. Go back to episode nine, I think, about triangles. Then you are in a triangle. Having any of these feelings means you are not being neutral. You are not helpful. You are part of the problem. Most of these feelings occur when we are in a polarized situation. Feelings change when we change our position in the system by differentiating ourselves, ourself, and they learn how to differentiate themselves. I, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can see this whole feeling guilty is a problem, assuming responsibility for somebody else's mistake is a problem, getting angry with someone when they get angry with you, that's a problem, getting frustrated and hearing someone's story, someone's pain, yeah, I agree, that's a problem. But why is being sympathetic a problem? So I called Seth and I said, Seth, help me out here. I, I can't be sympathetic now. Someone's heartbroken, someone's, someone's uh, problematic you know, in this crisis and we're not supposed to be sympathetic. And he clarified what that meant and, and, and the book does later on as well. And it's in showing empathy at the expense of the other person's responsibility. Because we know that the goal is hopefully for the person to take responsibility for their own life. And we do that not by, by, by abandoning them and, and leaving them, but by staying close and connected, but knowing that that is what will ultimately bring about the change that they crave, that they need. See, here's three ways that when empathy can become the problem. Number one, when us, when the leaders imbibe, drink in, swallow the anxiety of other people and become indistinguishable from them. Then you're no longer leading. You're just as angry. You're just as reactionary. Again, we're not saying you don't have your own strong thoughts about it, but have you thought about it? Have you heard from God? Have you discerned? Or are you responding immediately? Before you retweeted that thing, before you shared that post, before you called that person and rebuked them or whatever, have you thought about it? Have you prayed about it? That's when empathy can become a problem, when we become indistinguishable. Secondly, it can be a problem when the victim is perpetually a victim, meaning they're never encouraged or even challenged to take responsibility. We're not saying to not show empathy. Uh, but what we are saying is to show compassion and along the way, hopefully, our goal is that the person will take responsibility for their own life. Let me read you a quote from a different book of the same family of thinking, uh, A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. This is a challenging quote and you can see these notes in encleaders.ph so you can meditate on it yourself. It says, on the one hand, there can be no question that the notion of feeling for others, caring for others, identifying with others, being responsive to others, and perhaps even sharing their pain exquisitely or excruciatingly is a heartfelt, humanitarian, highly spiritual, and an essential component in a leader's response repertoire. We're not saying it's bad. Do it. He calls it essential, highly humanitarian, highly spiritual. We need to be this. All right, we need to feel the pain of others and all of those things. But he continues, but it has rarely been my experience 
that being sensitive to others will enable those others to be more self-aware, that being more understanding of others causes them to mature, or that appreciating the plight of others will make them responsible for their being, their condition, or their destiny. He's saying, yes, absolutely, this is important, but this can't be our only move. Because if that's your only move, then you are not causing them to take responsibility for themselves. Let's bring it back to conflict, okay? Um, I've been in situations like this so many times, and I've made the wrong response so many times. I'm in a team discussion, and I can clearly see person A is problematic, person B is the less problematic person here, the more aggrieved party, and I'm on the side of person B. And so person B will, will, will complain to me, and what I would often do in the past is forget this. I would show empathy, show sympathy, but I would not bring back responsibility to person B. I would take responsibility for myself. And I would say, you know what? You're right. Person A is really problematic. I'm, I will talk to him. Okay? I will talk to her. In fact, maybe you should even be there so you can see me talk to this person. All right? And so now person A gets corrected and they, and then they, 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 they do what they're supposed to do. But guess what? Person B never rose up. They never took responsibility. So the next time something pricks at them, the next time something irritates them, they call me again. And then what do I do? Ah, you're right. Who is it now? Person A. Person A. And person A will, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Or at least because they can't take it. But person B never stepped up. Something happens again. See the man. Person A. Person C. Let me call this new person. Let me tell you what I. And person B remains a victim. That's not helping them. That's not leadership. Absolutely listen. Absolutely identify with. Absolutely stay close to. And then the question is okay, how can we build this up? How do we take responsibility for this? That's when empathy can become problematic, when it becomes our only move and we don't encourage other people to take responsibility. Empathy can be problematic when we become indistinguishable as leaders, when we see the victims as perpetually victims. And thirdly, when the victim themselves can weaponize their empathy and shield themselves from taking responsibility because they can always claim, I don't need to take responsibility. You haven't shown me enough empathy. See, as we've said over and over again, the key to a highly functioning society in this thing is that for us all to take our personal responsibilities while staying connected to one another. See, here's what happens. And I read this uh, from a psychologist and a comedian. <laughs> the psychologist is Dr. David Schnark. And you can see, uh, you just Google the sentence and you'll find it on Psychology Today. He said, people who can't control themselves control the people around them. The comedian said, people who cannot control their emotions will try to control other people's behavior. And that's what happens. If a person is used to being shown empathy, but not used to being encouraged or even challenged to take responsibility, then anytime they don't like what's being said, they can throw away their own responsibility and say, no, you got to show me more empathy now. You got to show me more empathy now. In other words, I'm not going to manage myself. You all got to change around me. That's not good for the team. That's not good for society. That's not good for that person. 
that person is capable of more than that. That person is made in the image of God. They can do better than that. And again, we don't want to do over-spiritualize. Just have an issue, uh, uh, black and white. This No, we want to stay close to them. But we also know that empathy is not the only tool in our leadership repertoire. It's an essential tool, but it's not the only tool. We need to have the right posture. A posture of neutrality. Not one that says, I don't have a, a stake in this. I do care. But I will manage my own reactivity and stay connected to both sides while I encourage them, while I listen to them and hear them out. And then I uh, encourage them to take responsibility for their own behavior as well. We need to have the right thinking, the right posture, and this leads to the right steps. We need to make the right steps when it comes to conflict. And really, when it comes to conflict, uh, I love the way the book describes it. They call it building the immunity of the system, building the immunity of the system. Think of your immune system, right? When your immune system is down, the slightest thing, wow, what a, what a topic right now during the pandemic. The slightest thing is, is frightening. Mapuyat ka lang ng konti, sisipunin ka. Ambunan ka lang ng konti, sisipunin ka na. Why? Mababang immune system natin. And many anxious systems are like that. We're buffeted by all kinds of conditions and we're wondering, why is this always a fight? Why is this always a walkout? Why is there always this drama in the, in the family? Because the immune system is low. We need to learn how to build it up. We build it up by teaching the, uh, us how to fight well. The question isn't whether or not we're going to fight. We're going to fight. We're going to disagree. But how do we fight? What do we do when we fight? What's the best practice when we do that? the right steps. You know what else this means? As leaders, we need to increase our tolerance for pain. We need to increase our tolerance for pain. What that means is not shushing the conversation when someone is anxious and conflicting. This happens to me, you know, you just have a bad, shut up, you just, bad, blah, 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 and just want to be quiet. You know what? They may have an issue, but the reason why I responded the way I did is because my tolerance for pain is so low that one negative comment online, one negative remark by a person, and uh, I, I react. We need to increase our tolerance for pain. People are affected. This is a time of great pain. So if people are responding in pain, wag na tayong magulat. Wag na tayong magtakan. Oh, yung issue niya. Hello, look at the world around us. Lahat tayo may issue. Lahat tayo nasasaktan. High tolerance for pain means we can stay together. We're honoring the complexity of the conflict and the individuality of the person while maintaining our personal connection with them. That's what we need, especially at this time. We don't get, and, and the, the book quotes says it this way, we don't get into the quicksand of our own feelings and our desire for comfort. But we, even as we're highly attuned to the pain of others, we stay close to them and then we discern, Lord, what are you calling us to do at this time? How do you call us to respond? And you know what? Here's the amazing thing. When you do that with people, they will respond. They will respond. You know why? Because they're better than that. Because God made them that way. Because God loves them. And the Holy, if they're followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside of them moving and it's just a matter of time. The question is, as leaders, are we willing to listen to the pain? Are we listening to hear it? Are we willing to, to hear it and let them process it together? Let me give some examples of how I've failed at this and then how we've, 
how it worked. Uh, the second ever hike that I ever took with our son, Philip, was a terrible exercise on my part. Uh, we didn't prepare him for it at all. We, we, we dragged him out of bed at 2 in the morning. He was still sleepy. He wasn't 2 years old. And uh, we put him in a... I have this hike-carrying backpack. And we climbed. And the whole time I'm climbing, he was on my back. And it was raining. So he, imagine this kid that got 4 hours of sleep. He's hiking in the rain with his dad. And he's completely bewildered. He was not prepared for this. And he's screaming into my ear the whole time. Ah, 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 I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. And I'm ashamed to say my uh, anxiety got the better of me. And I put him down. And I raised my voice at him. And I said, what are you doing? Do you think this is good? Do you think this is easy? You want to go down? You want to quit? And, and, and Philip was cowed. Oh, no, 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 no. And he became quiet. And so I put him back on my back. And we kept hiking. And I could hear him quietly sobbing. Terrible dad. I got so convicted about that. And I said, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. So I apologized to him at the peak of the mountain. I apologized to him in front of everybody. As I had shouted at him in front of everybody. And I had to look back and think, why did I do that? It's because of my threshold for pain was so low. That one crying kid, you know, toddler was too much for me. I just couldn't tolerate it. And I said, Lord, I, I can't be this way. I need to let people tell me their pain. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, we were on a hike. And uh, this is the longest Philip's ever hiked, you know, with us. An eight-mile hike. Uh, what, 14, 15-mile hike? Uh, 14, 15 kilometers. And this time, I'd learned my lesson. <laughs> when he started complaining, I slowed down. I said, Philip, how are you feeling? I don't want to. I don't like this. Okay, 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 Philip. What would you like us to do? What do you think is the best way to, to go? Would you like to go back? Can we go back, Papa? We can go back. We can go back. I can do that with you. Would you like that? Well, what's ahead? Well, there's a lot to see ahead. There's a lot of adventure ahead. Our family is there. We can see them. And he put his head down and he started thinking. And then he said, okay, okay, we'll finish this. My gosh, I was so proud of him. And I was so glad I didn't short circuit the process. That he got to that place. Towards the end of the hike, I was getting exhausted and I kept stopping. I said, Philip, do you want to rest? And he said, Papa, no, no more resting, no more resting. I feel like we're near the end. No more resting. Let's finish this now. See, when he owned the solution because of his own God-given ability to take responsibility for his life, that raised him up to a level that my shouting, that my shushing, that my badgering could never bring him to. And see, that's what our conflict, that's what our teams need to get to. And I love seeing this in the teams I'm in. You know, the, as we were, we've been discussing this, one of my team members went up to me, okay, there's a conflict again. I've seen my role in this. And I said, hey, do you want me to get involved? And he said, you know what? I can do this. Let's talk about it first though. Process with me, check my heart, but I don't want you to get involved. I can do this. And so I didn't. And I was so proud of the people involved and how they rose to the occasion. This is what will happen in your team. If you will do that. Now, one caveat, okay, one disclaimer that they say is a leader does not acquire the capacity to lead calmly and thoughtfully in a moment. 
Rather, such an ability is the result of doing the kind of inner work we have been describing. A crisis does not create such leaders, it just reveals them. If the ability to manage our emotional reactivity is not already present when the crisis arrives, eh, it's too late to develop it. That's what the book says. What I want to say about that is this. Don't be impatient. Don't be impatient with your team. Don't be impatient with your society. Don't be impatient with your church. If you see them acting up, eh, ganun eh. Sino bang hindi ma- mahirapan? Sino bang hindi mananega sa lahat ng nangyayari ngayon? Lahat naman tayo may, ne- may <laughs> naiinis tayo, di ba? But at the same time, start. Do what you can, even now. Also, don't be impatient. Don't be impatient with your team, but also don't be impatient with yourself as a leader. Sure, you're going to get it wrong. Maybe you'll be like me on the top of that mountain, screaming at a two-year-old boy, saying, Do you want to quit? What a terrible father. <laughs> but don't be impatient with yourself. God knows how bad you can be. God knows how much you can mess up. And God's going to fix it. But you go to God and you realize, and with these tools now, you can identify, okay, that's where I went wrong. That was the mistake. Then you can fix it. This is how to be the calm leader, even in the midst of the hottest conflict. Have the right thinking. See the problem for what it really is. It's not about you personally. It's not about the issue uh, on the surface. There's, There's more than two sides. Number two, have the right posture, the posture of neutrality. Yes, I have strong convictions. Yes, I'll stay connected to the two, but I will manage my own emotional reactivity. And then make the right steps. The right steps of building the immunity of your team and increasing your own tolerance for pain and the team's tolerance for pain. So that when the fights happen, not if, when the fights happen, you'll know how to unite and reconcile even at those times. And I believe that it's in times like this that amazing leadership moves can happen. That what the devil meant for evil, God will turn to good. And where society and teams are falling apart, Yours can actually unite and be stronger for it. So that's it for leading in anxious times. Next week, we're going to give a summary, the overview, and like a um, uh, parting remarks on this subject before you transition to a totally new subject. This has been the ENC Leadership Podcast. If you want to find out more, you can go to encleaders.ph. If you want to contact me about it personally, send a message at Instagram to at Campus Joe. God bless you. And may the Holy Spirit empower you to be the calm leader, even in fierce conflict.